We're going to um, open up the book of Hebrews to chapter 10, and uh, you'll find it on page, we're going to read from verse 26, from page 1753. Maybe we'll do this in the style of the worship band. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no idea what we're saying. Anyway, yeah, so... We love you guys. Thank you, Reese. by the way. First time on the Cajon. Yeah. I didn't know he could play. Wonderful. Um, right, so we're, we're going to pick it up. And what we'll do is, rather than read the whole passage up front, we're going to read it in uh, section by section, uh, three sections. And we'll read from verse 26 in a, in a few moments. For it says, for if we go on sinning. It's halfway down page 1753. What are we doing? We are... Starting a new series on, on the theme of faith from just over a chapter in the book of Hebrews. And uh, we're doing it partly for the importance that this has for you personally in your, in your personal walk with God. I think that as Christians, there's no part of your life that isn't touched by faith, by the degree to which you trust God in that area of your life. And so I think that growth in maturity as a Christian is directly and exactly equivalent to growth in your ability to trust God and exercise faith in him. So the Christian life can be understood in those terms. But on the one hand, it's, it, it's turning away from your old way of life, which is a life that wasn't giving, expressing trust in God. You can kind of call it functional atheism. What do I mean? So, for example, prayerlessness. Before you were a Christian, you probably didn't pray. You had no reason to pray. You didn't know God. And that was because you didn't trust him. You didn't have faith in him. So growing as a Christian is growing in prayerfulness just as much as you grow in your trust of him. The same is true in dealing with sin in your life. Before you were a Christian, there was no law over you. Sure, you may have felt something of a morality, a conscience or whatever. I'm not denying that. But it wasn't one that's listening to the voice of God, trusting his view of things, trusting his view of what's right and wrong. And so to grow in faith, in your belief and trust in God, is to turn from your sin and embrace the, the life that he has for you. It's to turn from autonomy. So before you were a Christian, your life was guided by your own decisions. What do you want to do with your life? But to, to turn to Christ is to engage fully by faith in him and to say, I want to trust you for what I'm meant to do with my life. So for all these reasons, it matters to us very personally that we think about what does faith look like in day-to-day decisions. Everything that you are and do is touched by this. We're wanting to relearn what abandonment to God looks like. What it looks like, as Paul says, to be a slave of Christ. Paul said, I'm a slave of Christ. Why? Because he trusted Jesus fully. So he can voluntarily give himself wholly over to Jesus. That's what faith looks like, right? Now, Last week we were thinking a little bit about these Christians who are struggling in their faith. These are most likely Jewish Christians who have turned to Jesus as the fulfillment of their Jewish faith, but suddenly they're experiencing a backlash from their own community and wondering if their life is really better as Christians. And so he's writing to them to tell them all the ways in which they need to keep going. And one of the things that's going on with them is that they're struggling just 
in their day-to-day experience of God, maybe they're lacking joy, maybe they're lacking satisfaction, maybe they're lacking intimacy with him. And he tells them three things. He tells them to draw near by faith, the very things we've just been singing about. To, to ha- hold fast to their confession, the things they believe in. To stir each other up, the importance of the church community in helping you walk with God. Now, the question comes down to this. What does true faith look like? We can't see each other's hearts. But in this room, we all have a different relationship to God, in a sense. A different amount of faith. And I think it's, it's common sense to assume that in a room like this, with as many people as there are, we know from experience that not everyone who's in church is necessarily a Christian. Even if they think they are. I know some of you wouldn't even think you are. And maybe you're just at the point where you're really considering what does it mean to join the church? What does it mean to, be, to identify as a Christian? And so this stuff is really relevant for you. You ask, well, what is true faith? What does it mean for me to have a life of faith, of commitment to God? But there's others of you, and I think this is where this passage speaks to you most powerfully, is where you, you may be going to church, but maybe you're not sure what kind of faith you have. It doesn't necessarily reflect in your life and lifestyle. And then, of course, there's just the normal experiences of wavering and doubt that all Christians face where you maybe doubt from time to time whether the faith inside you is real. These are the people that this passage speaks to. What is true faith? And it gives us three profound and hugely important answers. And I want you to bear with us as we work through this passage because I'm absolutely convinced that God's going to be speaking to some of you and nailing you in, in areas. Let me just quickly sum up for you what he says here. He says that true faith is willing to say no to turn from sin. That, that true faith is a willingness to endure anything for Jesus. And that true faith is, is the ability to keep going to the end. That's roughly where we're going. And we're going to start with this first thing. Let's read from verse 26. He tells us that true faith is a willingness to say no to anything. And we're particularly thinking about sin. Stuff in your life that you know is offensive to God. It's a willingness to turn from any, anything in order to embrace Jesus. We're going to read from verse 26. He says this. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he's saying, listen, this is how it was under the old covenant when the people obeyed the law and identified as Israelites. He said, if they broke some of the laws. They were, in fact, experienced capital punishment. They were put to death. And now listen, he says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friends, these are some of the hardest verses in the New Testament. We don't spend all our time on these themes or in passages like this, but it's so important that we come to places like this. And they're hard sayings because so much of how you understand this turns on who you think he's speaking to. 
Who's he writing to when he's talking about these threats of judgment and all the rest of it? Now, I want to get to that question, but the first thing we've got to do is acknowledge that these are and are intended to be terrifying words. I want you to sit with that for a moment. When he says things like this, there's a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. When he says, how much worse punishment. And when he says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think we can numb ourselves and ignore words like this as though they belong to a bygone era and no longer have relevance to us in our present day with our present ways of thinking. Many people these days want to downplay, very deliberately want to downplay all the stuff in the Bible about judgment because, well, because it's frightening, because it's off-putting. Because if you talk about this, you sound like some kind of radicalized fundamentalist in your mindset. And so the aim often, even in churches, is to kind of ignore that stuff in the Bible and focus on all the positives, which are, obviously the Bible majors on are so rich and full of. But I would, I would suggest, and I think you need to think about this, that in an age that denies judgment and doesn't naturally assume that this stuff is real. I mean, if I was preaching 50 years ago, 100 years ago, you could talk about the threats that are in the Bible, and most people listening to you, whether they were Christian or not, would believe what you're saying is true. And many of them would want to respond right there and then. I think the very opposite is true now. You talk like this, and most people assume it's either not true, or it's true for a very small number of people, like your Hitlers and whoever else you want to put in that box. And I wouldn't suggest to you that maybe if that's our natural reaction today, to downplay this stuff or to not even believe that it's real, maybe today we need to talk about this a little bit more rather than less. How much more so if if it's real? For this reason, that when the Bible speaks of fearful things like God's wrath, his anger, his judgment, and the fact that he wants to hold every one of us to account one day, it speaks in this way in order to compel you to run to him for help. This morning, John Piper put up a devotional, and he was talking about this, the fear of God designed to draw us to him rather than to cause us to run away from him. And he used the example of how when his kids were younger, his family visited another family with a massive Alsatian dog, German Shepherd. And his boy, Carsten, stood face to face with this German Shepherd, and they were eye to eye. That's how big this dog was. Seven-year-old boy. And they were getting on fine. And the boy wanted to go and fetch something from the car, and he ran out to the car, and as he did, the dog trotted up behind him, growling. Now, at that point, the owner of the dog said to him, Carsten, why don't you just walk? The dog doesn't like it when people run away from him. Now, this dog's trained to run after people who are running away from him. When I was a younger, I used to run away from dogs. I love animals, but I had a problem with dogs. They used to chase me for some reason, and I was always running, and they were always chasing, and it's exactly this. I mean, I was like, I used to do a paper round when I was about 13 or 14, and there were a couple of dogs on there that were absolutely 
These were creatures from the pit of hell. You put, <laughs> I would put the newspaper in through the door, and one of them would instantly shred it to a million pieces. I used to fight with it just for the fun of it. But there was this one dog who would chase me up if the owner let open the door. They chased me up the pathway, bit me once or twice. And like, you run from crazy dogs, like, you're going to get bit. The idea is to stand your ground and kick them in the face. But uh, <laughs> That was not the point of John Piper's thing. So he said, the owner said to him, why don't, why don't you just walk? The dog doesn't like it when people run away from him. And, and Piper goes on and said, if Carsten hugged the dog, he was friendly and would even lick his face. But if he ran from the dog, the dog would growl and fill Carsten with fear. And I, Now here's the point when we're thinking about God and his judgment. He says, that's a picture of what it means to fear the Lord. God means for his power and holiness to kindle fear in us. Not to drive us from him, but to drive us to him. For the simple reason that God promises refuge to everyone who runs to him. And judgment for everyone who runs from him. So we have to sit with this for a while and recognize that when he speaks in terrifying language like he does here, it's intended, it's intentional, and it's important to understand the weight of these words. Why is it so frightening? Well, it's particularly frightening when you start to realize that he's writing to people in church. He's saying, in effect, that the more you know, the more culpable you are if you run away. Isn't that what he says? If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You know, if you, if you never heard about Jesus and you've never walked in set foot into a church. You know, it's not that you're without blame. The Bible says everyone knows that God's there. They know it in their heart. They know it in creation. And no one is without, without excuse. Everyone knows without excuse. I don't know how to express that. But none of us can, can claim to be blameless. But it says here that if you know the truth and run away from God, your culpability rises. And that's a fearful thing to think about. When you think about judgment, you know, Jonathan Edwards put it like this, that he said, sin against God being a violation of infinite obligations. He was writing a couple of centuries ago, so hence the, the strange expressions. But he said, being a violation of infinite obligations must be a crime infinitely heinous and deserving of infinite punishment. You know, a lot of people think, how can it be fair that God punishes people for acts of stupidity or or sins that they commit, or whatever. And he says, listen, because you're not just sinning against you or me. If you sin against me, fine, you don't really deserve much punishment. If I sin against you, I don't deserve much. But if I sin against the holy God, who is infinite in his obligations and in his greatness and his grandeur, my guilt rises with the, with the glory of the person I've sinned against, the holy God. This passage is terrifying because he's talking very deliberately to people who are in church. And I want us to think then, well, why? Why is he talking to us in that way? Who is it he has in mind? Now let me be very clear with you. I don't think he's speaking to people who truly know and love Jesus and call him the Lord of their lives. That's because not only in this book, but everywhere through the New Testament, the assumption is that if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, you're not going to be sinless, not until you go and see him face to face. 
you know, in 1 John, a, a, a few books later, he puts it so helpfully when he says, if we say we have no sin, so if you claim that you're one of the sinless Christians, he says we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. You're a liar, basically. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This very book, the book of Hebrews, says that Jesus is a sympathetic, merciful high priest, that we can run to him when we feel tormented with temptation or guilty on account of our sin. So I don't think that he's speaking to someone who really loves Jesus and really surrenders to him and to you in those moments when you feel in the heat of temptation, you give in to things. I don't think he's speaking about the normal experience of Christians, but he is speaking rather to people who, who are on the fence. Maybe you're, you've been going to church maybe your whole life, maybe just a few weeks. And maybe you think as well that you're a Christian. Maybe you've even understood the claims of Christ. You've understood the gospel, like he says it here, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. But you, for some reason, you're holding back. And you're a little bit like one of the people under the old covenant, the the Israelites, before Jesus came. You you were born into the community of Israel. You were Jewish. You were Hebrew. And yeah, you profess belief in God. But you could be in the community, but not truly of the community. In other words, you could belong to to the community in name only or in how you dressed, or in how you spoke, and in how you go through the motions. But your heart had never truly engaged in faith to, to love and trust the living God. And the same is true for many people who claim the name of Christian. You can be in the community, but never truly of the community. What's the test of that? It's this, that there is a part of your life that you have never wanted to hand over to Christ. I think that's what he means here. When he says it very clearly, he says, if we go on sinning deliberately, in the original, the word deliberately comes right at the front of the sentence to give it the most emphasis. He's saying there are people in the community who want to call themselves Christians, but they want to hold on to their lifestyle that that offends Christ. I know this is really heavy stuff. I want you to listen because always there's hope in this. That's the meaning of it. It means in effect that you call Jesus Lord with your lips, but your heart has never really called him Lord because to call him Lord is to say, I I turn from my sin. I trust you. I recognize your way is best. I want to live for you. And just in case you think this is just an odd passage in one book of the Bible, Listen to how Jesus talks about what it means to be his follower. He says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. What rash words, right? He just says, I'm going to follow you. And Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying, have you really considered what this costs you to to call me your master? You're going to have to turn away from everything. And then Jesus turns to another. He says, follow me. So he summons this guy. And the guy answers and says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So for some reason he hesitates. It's like he's torn. I want to go and pay my respects to my dead father and not follow you. 
And Jesus replies in quite a shocking way. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I don't think that, I think Jesus is, is, is deliberately you know, shocking us and exaggerating in this passage. But he's doing so to provoke you to think, how much is he worth to you? And then there's a third one. It says, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, part of what it means to become a Christian is to lay down absolutely everything. He's telling us in this passage in Hebrews that the reason, the reason why you must do that is because there is actually only one option. It's the Christ option. Isn't that what he says? He says, if we go on stealing deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, I want to be clear again what I think that doesn't mean. I don't think it means the cross doesn't work for you anymore if you sin after you've become a Christian. It doesn't mean that at all. We live lives of continual repentance and of continually pleading the blood of Christ to save us. What it means is something a little bit more like this. Have you ever had that experience? I'm sure we all have. Where you've been at a friend's house in London and you've stayed out late. Or maybe you've been out of a bar, you've just been socialising, you've stayed out really late. And you've known in your head when the last train was going to leave. You thought, it's no problem. And then you found yourself running to the platform. And maybe you've seen the doors closing as the last train is just pulled away from the platform and you're stranded. In the dead of night, it's a horrible feeling, isn't it? In central London, when you feel like, oh my goodness, how am I going to get home? I know one friend of mine saw her, and it was, I don't know how it ended up happening, but there was only one bus left, and it had just finished its route. And she lived on the other side of town. And this kindly bus driver took mercy on her and drove her all the way across town back to her house alone, his sole passenger. So don't tell anyone. <laughs> I just told you all, and now it's going to go on the internet. What he's saying is, if you keep making that bargain in your mind, I, I like Jesus, I think, he's, I think what he's saying is true, but I, I want to hold on to my former way of life. I'm not ready yet to, hold, I'm not ready yet to hand everything over to him. He's saying that there's no other sacrifice available. And this is the only way in. Jesus called it the narrow gate. And I think part of what it means to be the narrow gate is you need to put down all your bags. And you can squeeze through it, but only you. Not your sin that you want to smuggle in with you. Not your autonomy and your desire to live a life of self-rule. Not that relationship which you know has brought you into compromise. Nothing else. He says it's the narrow gate. If we go on sinning deliberately, he says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's nothing else you can turn to. What it is then is a call to those of you who would say, I, 
I'm a Christian, but you know you've denied it with your life and your lifestyle. You've never really truly surrendered to Jesus. He says right now to you, this is a call to radical, decisive repentance, which is to turn from your sin and embracing Christ wholly. And his promise is always to those of us who do, you're mine. Nothing can take you out of my hand. True faith is a willingness to say no to anything if it means saying yes to Jesus. Is there anything in your life that you've been unwilling to say no to? Second mark of true faith, and more briefly, is the ability to face anything and keep hoping in Jesus. We're going to read on from verse 32. It says, but recall The former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession. And an abiding one. Now, we've got to keep in mind that what we're saying about faith is basically... This, that you're saying to Jesus, you are better than anything I could lose or indeed anything else I could gain in life. Nothing else compares with you. That relationship, that sin, those dreams, that autonomy, none of it compares to you. That's what faith is, is saying, I lay hold of you because I believe by faith you are better than everything else in this world. If only we could see that. When we go into a blind panic because of political shenanigans and whatever. Faith is laying hold of Christ. And here are a couple of very concrete ways that this has been true for many Christians down the running centuries. One is that they've suffered a loss. They've had to give stuff up, sometimes in very painful, life-changing ways. Have you ever met a Christian who's, had to, who's been rejected by their family because they embrace Christ? I, I've met such people. This is real. You've had to turn from opportunities or turn from even your property or whatever it is because of embracing Christ. That's what he's saying it was for these people, that to, to, to embrace him was to lose stuff in this world. And that's real and it's painful and it's hard. But he also says this, that one of the concrete ways that, that people have, have experienced this has been a willingness to identify with other people who are suffering. You know, if you had a friend who went to prison because they were a Christian, which was a very real possibility at the time this letter was written, and is very real in parts of the world now, you would then be responsible in your heart to support them. You need to bring them food. You need to bring them clothing because the prison doesn't look after them, not in those, that day and that time. But you know that every time you go and see your friend in prison, you put your life on the line. Because then everyone knows that you identify with them. It's one of the scariest things, isn't it? To identify with people who you're basically on the same side of them, but you don't really want to be seen with them. We've seen this instinct going on in this whole referendum thing. You know, some of you have been on the side of Nigel Farage, but you would never want to be on the side of Nigel Farage. And some of you on the side of David Cameron, but you never really want to be on the side of David Cameron. So we're like, I agree with them, but not for their reasons. And I don't really want to be associated with them. Well, the same is true with faith. 
Sometimes it's the most radical brothers and sisters in Christ who end up in the most trouble. And the minute they're in trouble, you don't really want to be seen with them because they're a little bit extreme, a little bit loony. And he's saying, for Christians down through the running ages, not only have they lost their own stuff, but they've been willing to identify themselves with the most radical brothers and sisters in Christ who suffered the most. Now, is this something that we're likely to face? I say to you, yes, if you're consistent in your faith and public about it. You can live a life of total self-protection, playing the game, tactical, and you'll never lose anything. But if you are genuinely consistent about your love for Jesus and public about it, I promise you there's not a person in this room who won't lose something on account of that. It might be a promotion. It might be an opportunity. It might be a relationship. There is always a cost to following him. So what makes us willing to embrace this kind of lifestyle when sometimes your life is worse after you become a Christian? What can make you willing to embrace that? You know, I've mentioned to you some of the missionary friends that we've had the privilege of meeting over the years, but one lady whose name is Birbel, is from a, she's German, that explains the name. She um, is from a kind of aristocratic family in Germany. But upon becoming a Christian and then devoting her life to missions in the Middle East, she has been practically and to all intents and purposes, disowned, disowned by her family. She lives a life of, of relative poverty to what you and I know, pouring her life out for the Lebanese, and now, of course, also Syrians, flooding in Muslim Syrians who are filling the, the Christian churches in Lebanon. How on earth can a, someone voluntarily embrace a worse form of life for the sake of Christ? And the answer is just here for us you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one what does true faith look like true faith knows that whatever Christ offers you not only now but also in eternity is far better than whatever treasures you can hoard on earth whatever success you can build for yourself on earth whatever relationships and security you can enjoy on earth All of it is as nothing in comparison with what Christ offers. And when a person knows that, in the deepest part of their soul, that faith will lead to profound obedience to Jesus and willingness, as we put it here, to face anything for his sake. Friend, if you're someone who grieves a little bit too much the loss of things now, you panicked on Friday when you thought, What's going to happen to our future? If you're someone who avoids identifying in a very public way with Jesus for fear of the repercussions and what will happen, I think you need a little bit more of a dose of this renewed faith that he's trying to encourage in these people as well. Here's the last aspect of what true faith looks like in a believer. It's this. True faith keeps going to the end, confident of soon seeing Christ. It keeps going. I want to read to you now from verse 35. It says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. It's about Jesus coming back. 
but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Real faith is a faith that keeps going. Now, researchers have looked long and hard at what allows people to succeed in life. And actually, a lot of our assumptions have been proved wrong. We tend to think that the people who who most succeed in life are the people who are most gifted, most intelligent, with the most ability. And sure, those things matter. Of course they matter. But actually, they're not the determining factor for whether you, you know, how high you ascend in your company or how much you end up earning or these kinds of things. What they figured out is actually the most important determining factor for whether people are going to sort of make it in those terms in life is grit. The ability to keep going in the face of circumstances. There was a missionary to uh, India who lived a couple of centuries ago, sort of one of the early fathers who birthed the modern missionary movement. And his name was William Carey. William Carey was a shoesmith, and he'd suffered a lot even before he left the country. He moved to India and started learning Bengali so that he could translate the Bible into Bengali and also so that he could talk to them about Jesus. William Carey, by the time he died, he'd recruited others into this mission and they translated into Bengali and Hindi and about five or six other languages, the whole of the Bible. But they'd also translated sections of the Bible into over 200 dialects. A profound achievement by any measure. Carey said this of himself. There are words that have lived with me and with many others. He says, when he was asked what was the secret of how he achieved so much, he said simply, I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. He's saying, in effect, I'm not particularly gifted. I'm not particularly intelligent. None of these things account for what I've done in life. I just put one foot in front of the other, and don't stop. Now, I think that something like that is what he's saying about what real faith looks like here. He's saying something about the grit that counts. You know, Jesus told a story about seeds sown in a field and reaping sort of what, what happens with the crops that come up. And he said, this is like different hearts. He said, sometimes it's sown on shallow soil, and it grows up really quickly for joy. It's like some people, they, they just think, wow, I love Christianity. And they, start, they say, oh, I'm going to throw myself into that. He says, the minute trials come, the minute it gets a little bit difficult for you, it's like the sun's beating down. And because you have such shallow roots, it just withers and dies. And he says, that's what an emotional response looks like. And, and it doesn't last, unfortunately. And then he says, there's other type who they grow up, but then thorns come around, growing around the crops. And they begin to choke it because they suck up all the nutrients and block the light. And he said, this is like people who face trials and temptations. The love of money and the love of all kinds of things in life, they overshadow. And he said that it's not just an emotional response, it's kind of an opportunistic response. But as soon as other stuff distracts you, that stuff pulls you away from Christ. And then he says there's the good soil, where the seed is sown, and then it reaps 30, 60, 100-fold fruit. I find this incredibly comforting and encouraging because what he's saying is we all have different levels of gifting and we'll be more or less used by God in in, in the faith. But 
None of that is really the most important stuff at the end of the day. The most important thing for a Christian is that you keep going. To put it negatively, I think nothing is more sad than a Christian, someone who has claimed to be a Christian who has stopped or has grown cynical and hardened. And he tells us, look, there's three reasons here why you, you must hang on. One of them, he says, is the reward. He says, that first verse, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. I really don't know even how to begin to imagine the ways that God wants to reward people who are faithful to him. But one thing I'm confident of is that all the way through the New Testament, it keeps telling us God promises reward for the faithful. And you can be sure of this, that it's going to be better than, than whatever you can imagine. He says also a second reason is that there's a certain end coming. It's absolutely certain. You see how he said a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. It's like when you're running a race. And Paul thought of his life in this way. He said there's a finishing tape. The finishing tape here is Jesus returning or it's us one day seeing him. It will end. Your life is a blip in comparison to eternity and it will come to an end. So spend it for what counts. Spend it for Christ. I remember when I was a kid, when we were at school, we went to like an inter-school cross-country race. I was probably about 13 or 14 at the time. And we trained like once a week. So we were not very serious about sports. When we played football, we get trashed like 9-0 against whoever we played. It was an appalling um, record. And when we went to run this cross-country race, we, you know, I was lined up against loads of kids I didn't know. And we started off. And pretty much within about two minutes, there was a kid, I remember him, with long ginger hair flowing in the wind. And he was half a football field away from me, and I had no chance of ever catching up because I was like, I'm running as fast as I can, nothing's happening. I'm like heaving, and we've barely begun. Anyway, a few miles later, we pull in and we come round, you know, out of all the mud and whatever, and I can see the finishing line in front of me. And I always, somehow, the adrenaline would always kick in at the end, and I'd start sprinting. And I, you know, I was already, already, already halfway through the pack, so I had no chance of like, winning this thing. And as I was running towards that tape, a teacher from another school, I'll never forget this, he just leaned over the barrier and started shouting, there's no point running now. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to smack that teacher. (laughs) You know, Jesus says the very opposite to you. He said it really, actually, you know, genuinely, you know, I know this is like very PC these days, but it's really genuinely not about comparing yourself with others. It's about keeping going. There's a certain end in sight. Why would you throw away your hope, which has great reward, your confidence? And here's the last reason why you should carry on. It's because God's got you, friend. You know how he closed it off, this last verse? He says, we're not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, why, why can he put it like that? You know, there's, there's two ways often of speaking in the New Testament. One is an imperative, keep going. And the others are called indicatives, which is just, this is true about you, whether you realize it or not. Things like, you're going to keep going. And he can say it to you or he cannot say it to you. It doesn't matter. It's true of you. And this is one of those things. 
It's weird, isn't it, how on one hand God can speak to us to encourage us to keep going, but then he can speak to us and say, no, you, you are going to keep going. Now, how can he talk to us in that way? Well, for the simple reason that the reason why we persevere is because God has put his faith in our hearts and he will not let us go. You may feel like you've made the worst choices in life up to this point. You may feel like your faith has been the weakest and you're almost embarrassed to even be in this room. You may feel like you'll never achieve anything for God. And he says to you, we're not those who shrink back and are destroyed. We're not those who approach the finishing line and listen to the taunts of the enemy. There's no point running now. He says, we're those who have faith and preserve their souls. Friends, we've been trying to uncover what does real faith look like? And I'm certain there are one or two of you here who just think, I'm not sure if I've got that. As I close, I want us just to, I want us all to confront ourselves with these questions that just respond to each of these points. First of all, you need to ask yourself, are you, are you choosing sin over Jesus? Do you need to repent today? What will happen if you don't? I think you need to let the words rest heavily in your mind and your heart. That's why they were written. It's not a complicated thing to turn from your sin. It can be a difficult thing, but it isn't a complicated thing. It's a decision you make, and then you cry out to God for help. And that's particularly to those of you who recognize that you've been identifying as a Christian for years, but you're not sure that you ever really had the real thing. Because you've always been guarding off a part of your heart from surrendering it to to him. It's a fearful thing, he says, to fall into the hands of the living God. And you either run away from him or you run to him. What are you going to do? Are you choosing sin over Christ? Here's a second question. Are you holding back out of fear of loss? Are you holding back from publicly identifying yourself with Christ? Or are you holding back from actually just obeying him in your life and your calling because you're afraid of what you will lose? He wants to remind you. (laughs) You can do it when you know that you have a better possession and an abiding one. There is nothing that you can lose in life that God won't repay a thousandfold in eternity. And are you someone who's flagging? Maybe even you've been tempted to give up. I've seen far too many people give up. And I always feel the deepest type of sadness when I think about their faces and what I thought was real in them, but was proved to not be real. The simple thing for us to do is that we need to come to Jesus now in your heart and to recognize as you look at him, as you look at what he's done for you, Look at him in his lordship. 
his seat of authority, and to say, he is truly worth it. He is truly worth everything that I can give to him. He loves you. Can we pray together? I recognize that some of you um, are very conscious that you are not, you're definitely not someone who identifies as a Christian. And I, I just want you to feel totally that you can continue coming and feel that you can continue weighing up the claims of Christ. If you don't feel like you've had enough chance to do that, or if you don't fully understand it, then I urge you, search this out until you do understand it. Don't walk away until you really think you've got to grips with it and you've looked at it in its, in its fullness. If today you think, okay, I think I can see what this is about and I actually do want to follow Christ, I would love it if you come and talk with me afterwards and pray with me. I can just give you some advice. I can help you think about what that means. But I think m- most of what was said today and most of what, the, what this passage was about was written to people who are in church and you think, think of themselves, think of yourself as someone who is a Christian. But you know that there's some way in which you're holding back. And it's this fear and this desire and there's all kinds of things going on in your heart, conflict. And, you know, as we take communion, that is always the perfect opportunity to recognize the choice that's at stake here. That in the one hand, you have the body and the blood of Christ broken for you what he has done to make you his very own. In your other hand, you've got all the other things you want to hold on to in life. And he says, to have the body and the blood, you need to let go of the other stuff. So do it right now, as you pray, as you take communion. The guys are going to just sing over us, and uh, I want us to take this bread and drink this wine, and joyfully come to him and say, Lord, have my life. Should we do that? Father, we pray that as we are, Lord, confronted with some of the most challenging and difficult words in the whole Bible, we're also given profound hope that, Lord Jesus, you have made a way open for us to love you, to know you, to experience your transforming power. So move upon our hearts right now by your Spirit and in the coming weeks and months and in this whole community as we stir one another up to love you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.